Monday, April 15th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Molecule One, Jason Moser, and from Molecule Supernova, Supernova, excuse me, Matt Argusing. Good to see you guys. Hey. Happy Tax Day. Mm. Um, If you're one of our dozens of listeners in Massachusetts, happy Patriots Day. Right. Uh, Boston Marathon is Boston Marathon is going on, and two of our colleagues are running it, Matt Koppenheffer and Seth Jason. Wow, wow. Good luck, guys. Good luck to both of them. Heartbreak Hill. They're probably already through Heartbreak Hill by now, but God, that's a a tough one. Well, so I went to Boston College, which is where Heartbreak Hill ends. That's right. And so uh, I remember my senior year, my sophomore year and my senior year, my friends and I would watch the marathon right over the sort of the the final ridge of Heartbreak Hill and uh people were just so excited to be done they, you know there, <laughs> oh, there was people were the looks on their faces <laughs> yes imagine. yes we were I just um, went through hell we were college students who may or may not have been consuming alcohol before noon <laughs> and and cheering them on but people were so happy to be going downhill do so. you think that same level of excitement applies to today being tax day people are just so excited to have it finished i mean i know i was pretty happy to throw that check in the mail and finally be done with it i mean while i'm not happy to be putting the check in the mail, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, at least it's not something that I have to worry about tomorrow. It's done. No, I think for most people, taxes is just sort of the the one big thing you have to do every year that nobody looks for. I feel like if you're cutting a check and putting it out there, then at least send me like a T-shirt or a koozie or something. Like, Thanks I paid the, the tax man. You know, something. Let me get something out of you it. You want some IRS-branded swag? That's what you want? I mean, it's just a thought. All right. Uh, we're going to talk <laughs> bank earnings. We're going to talk gold, which we rarely, if ever, talk about. Uh, and one CEO's letter to shareholders, but we are going to start in the world of telecom. Shares of Sprint up more than 13% this morning, and that is because Dish Network has made a bid to buy Sprint for the cool sum of $25.5 billion. And, Maddie, you and I were talking about this earlier this morning. My first blush take on this is, Dish is just swinging for the fences. <laughs> they, are just, they are just swinging for the fences on this one. Is this going to work? This seems like a risky bet. Mm, I think it's a bet they almost have to make because this is where the industry is going. We've seen so much consolidation in the space. And what consumers want, if you think about us as a, we as consumers, we want, we have a phone line. Usually, uh, we sell cellular line these days. We have cable TV. We have internet or satellite TV. And it's, it's kind of like we want all that to come into one, basically one hole. We yeah. pay one price per month. We don't want to have all these alternate subscriptions. So there's that whole bundling aspect, which a lot of these service providers have done. Dish kind of needs to do that to be remain competitive, but also this is a bit of a wireless spectrum play. We've we've kind of heard about the shortage in wireless spectrum and how it's you know it's very competitive right now. By doing this deal, Dish can kind of get you know combine theirs with with Sprint's cellular spectrum. So it just it's it's more airwaves, which is more valuable more valuable assets. And Dish has got the the balance sheet to do a deal this big. They kind of need to do it. Yeah, I agree. I mean, they, they, you know, they have a, a pretty solid subscriber base in, in, you know, television viewers that, that subscribe to Dish Network currently, but it is all about bundling. And, you know, we see it either through Comcast or with Verizon Fios. They've done a tremendous job in, in bundling those services and giving us as consumers that, that great option there. And the problem with Dish is they were literally running into a wall at, at this point. They're, what is, what do they do next? Because yeah. it's one thing to be a Dish provider, but we know with, with this move to, to, you know, streaming and the internet, 
that for all of our television use. Uh, obviously, AT&T and Verizon making tremendous investments in their wireless spectrum. Speaking of Fios, we know they're not really building out uh, Fios anymore for right. Verizon because it's so capital intensive. So yeah, it's, it's a play on that wireless spectrum. I think they are, I think they're thinking about this correctly. Um, they have the financial means to do it. And I, I think it's, it's probably a, a good move. And anytime you're in an industry where there's, there is so much capex, so much investment has to be made and, and networks have to be maintained. Anytime you can grab scale, which is essentially what they're getting with Sprint, that's that's a profitable. It's usually a good strategic move. And there are other places around the country too that don't have the access to that cable, uh, to those cable networks. I mean, there are plenty of places in the in the United States to date that still don't have uh, the broadband access. And so mm-hmm. I think that this is their effort to sort of help uh, reach that that contingency of of uh, subscribers that maybe can't quite get there. And uh, and so uh, they'll probably gain a few gain a few more subscribers out of it. I bet. What. There are so many companies on the competitive landscape who are affected by this. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious the extent to, that you guys think that some are nervous about this move. Some are maybe applauding this move. Like, yeah, go for it because we feel like you, you can't touch us. I'm just thinking about all the ripple effects, potential ripple effects for not just Verizon and AT&T, but also, you know, Direct TV, and you know, we we were talking before we started taping about Breaking Bad, and you know, like the the entertainment providers, HBO, AMC, just all of these companies out there. Is there anyone who, at least for today, is less secure about their position, or is everyone just sort of saying, no, this is the first step? You know, it's it's not a done deal, and we'll just see how this plays out. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I, I think. It, it is the first step. It's not a done deal. So far, very far away from anything being done. Soft, here. SoftBank I, I, has made a bid. For, correct. Uh, yeah, it could come back with another bid. And so. I think, I mean, but, when you look at it from the perspective of talking about these bundling options, I think then you look at something like a Verizon or a Comcast, and they must be saying at least, huh? You know, there's another player out there. So I mean, it's going to be potentially some competition, you know, in that regard, which. Who knows? I mean, really, but consumers, I think, could genuinely win from that just by bringing another option to play. But then I think that you look at things like your Netflixes and your HBOs and your Amazons, even to a degree with their prime streaming, the, those those types of options, AMC even, uh, because there's there's more potential to get that product out to more people uh, via this wireless spectrum, uh, bringing more subscribers into the mix there. So those are potential winners, I think, from this. But again, yeah, very, very early stages, and, and we have a, a lot to, to watch play out. Citigroup's first quarter profit was up 30%, better than analysts were expected, and uh, the investment banking division seems to be getting it done there. Um, we saw uh, on on Friday uh, a couple other big Wall Street banks, J.P. Morgan, Chase, Wells Fargo reporting. It seemed like the, the results there were mixed, um, and the shares were down, certainly Friday morning, sort of reflecting that. Uh, on the flip side, Citigroup, which for years uh, seemed like it was in last place among the big Wall Street banks, or maybe not in last place, I guess I should say, more along the lines of maybe the last of the big Wall Street banks where you wanted to have your money. It seems like they've, dare I say, it turned a corner in the last six months. Um, any Any reaction to sort of how they're doing? I couldn't help but notice that since Vikram Pandit was either either he resigned or he was fired, depending on who you want to listen to, <laughs> not there, no. um, shares up about 25% since mid-October. Yeah, and that's like when the housing crisis hit and, and prices tanked. I mean, at some point, things have to get better because they're so bad, right? And I think that's probably applicable to City to Citigroup here in some capacity. I mean, you're looking at a company here that over the course of the last five years, their, their top-line revenue has been basically cut in half, and their share count has increased by a factor of six. 
So many shareholders have just gotten hammered by this company. And the biggest problem is with Citibank or any of these big big banks really is is that they are such black holes of information and their performance is so dependent on the management teams that are behind them and the incentives that are in place for those management teams to perform. And and I just don't really see any compelling reason at all for an investor to get behind something like a city or a Bank of America. I mean, Goldman and J.P. Morgan, we talked about before, they're a little bit more, they're, they're, they're able to do some more things in their investment banking sides uh, of the businesses than others. So I could see the investment, you know, thesis for that. But when I look at these big banks, I, I just, I'm not interested in them all at all. And I feel like if you need bank exposure, then you're better off just buying into a well-run insurer because you're pretty much guaranteed that their, por- por- their portfolio is going to have some exposure to that. So. And I think part of part of Citigroup's good re- results today, and I, I will point out, you know, it's it's up today in what is a pretty pretty ugly day for the market so no. far. And I think it's part of it was they released some reserves. They had you know yep. banks reserve you know, against potential loan losses, and these banks have been so conservative over the you know past few years for obvious reasons because they wrote a lot of bad loans. And this is Citigroup saying, you know, actually things are a little bit better than we expected. You know, mo- less of our loans are going bad. That's a good thing. So they released right. that. So that that helped profits. But you know, gosh, is that is that a really strong positive story? I don't know. Until they do go bad, right? And so I mean, we were talking about this. I think on the radio show this week, and Ron Gross was he made a good point. I think with these banks, you really want to pay more attention to revenue. And and Maddie, you mentioned this last week, paying attention to that top line revenue growth because really banks can kind of their earnings per share are mm. they can really kind of work those any which way depending on the reserves that they release or how loans are performing or whatever. But you know, th- their revenue growth wasn't all that right. robust. And so, I mean, when you look at it from that perspective. There was cost-cutting involved, and that, you know, that's one of those things that helps in the short term. But you can't can't cost-cut your way quarter after quarter. Right, and let's just, I mean, the consumer banking side of things, for example, that's becoming very commoditized. I mean, we as consumers are just looking for a way to never go to a banking center and do our banking online and for the freest way to do it as possible. And, I mean, when you look at just the big picture of banks now closing down more banking centers, uh, and and that's a trend that's expected to continue you know, in mass over the course of the next decade. I mean, I, I just don't really see any big argument for these guys. Uh, to paraphrase the world's most interesting man, we don't often talk about gold. <laughs> but when we do, it's because of headlines like this from the International Business Times. <laughs> Price of gold in virtual free fall. Um, <laughs> as, as, you, yeah, as you mentioned, Maddie, not a great day in the market. Part of that story is the GDP numbers coming out of China, which are having the expected ripple effect. But yes, you look over the last, I think it's six months or so, the price of gold has dropped 20% or, you know, maybe even slightly more. I think it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 10% just in the last couple of days. And it's down, man, it's down a hundred bucks this morning last I checked. Yeah. Which is quite a drop. It's funny. Yeah, not funny if you're, if you're a big gold <laughs> investor. Sorry. Uh, but there's so many things hitting gold right it, now. It, let me cut you off for a second. It's a little funny. It's funny, Rupert. If, yeah. if, if you're people who make your living talking about stocks, and you've been hearing it from gold investors for the last couple of years, how gold is infallible and untouchable. All I'm right. Just, I'm not going to speak for you or Jason. I'm just going to say for me, this is a little funny. Make okay. juggle. Just a little. Well, this let me tell you how hilarious this is. No. <laughs> so you've got Cyprus, which we, we know what's going on in Cyprus. Cy- Cyprus apparently has to forced by the ECB to liquidate their gold reserves to help pay for the bailout. And so that that that's happening, and that's sparked fears that Portugal, Spain... You name it, we'll also have to liquidate gold. So there's that. Uh, there's John Paulson, of course, we know, big gold investor, you know, one of the largest hedge funds in the world. He's been getting crushed because he's invested in gold and the gold miners. Apparently, there's fears that he might liquidate. Um, also, this you got to remember, this is 
people often, especially traders, they they buy gold on margin. They buy a lot of commodities on margin. Mm-hmm. Same with the foreign currency markets. And gosh, when you, when gold takes a hit like this, it just can perpetuate because these guys are sort of forced to cover. Um, you know, they get margin calls. So, and I just think it's interesting. Dennis Gartman, who writes a lot about commodities and gold, he says, "I've never seen anything like this." Referring to gold's drop over the last week, which coming from him is kind of interesting. So, this is just all around. You, you could pretty much call it a crash. I blame um, Twitter. <laughs> with the free flow of information now. But, there you go. I mean, so, you know what I think is really funny, and I mean, you read this all the time, is that when people say that they no longer have confidence in the metal, that they've lost confidence in gold. What does that mean? What does that mean? It's I know, the same that gold mean? that it was 25. Gold doesn't do anything. Right. It's, yeah. it's not as, it's not as it's, lustering as it was yeah, the other day. I, I need to polish it a little more. Yeah, it's, it's just it's, not it's, the same gold I knew. <laughs> It's the point that uh, Joe Mager years ago when he went on CNBC made where he said, which is he's absolutely right, gold has no intrinsic value. Yep. Um, you, you know, and we were yeah, talking before right. the taping. It's not like silver where you can actually do something, you know, you can turn it into something else. Gold has no intrinsic value. It's a perceived value. value. And by the way, yeah. uh, I'll just use this as yet another occasion to say, go onto YouTube and just type in Joe, just type in Joe Mager gold and you'll find <laughs> the video clip where just people were just hazing him over that. But it's true. Uh, it, he's right. I, I mean, this is. If anything, this just serves as yet another reminder um, that it's, I don't know, it's just for all the, the run-up and all the excitement that we saw, and let's to, let's be fair, gold had an amazing run-up, and there were people who probably made a lot of money off mm-hmm. of that. But even then, we were sitting here saying, ah, I, I don't care about the run-up. I don't want to be invested uh, in this. Somebody gives me a bar of gold. I'm selling it and buying stocks. Right on. <laughs> um uh, radio at fool.com is the email address if you want to take me to task for taking humor in what's happening to the pricing goal. Um, Jeff Bezos, CEO of Amazon, uh, published his annual letter to shareholders. Um, and Jason, the overarching theme of this, and I say this as a longtime shareholder of Amazon, is that um, it seemed like he was defending. I didn't, it, the tone didn't strike me as defensive. But it struck me as Jeff Bezos coming out and defending the investments that Amazon has made in Amazon Prime, in the Kindle. And that struck me as appropriate when you consider the fact that for fiscal year 2012, Amazon lost money. I mean, just forget what the stock is doing. In the last year, the company lost $39 million, nine cents a share. That's how the letter struck me. What stood out to you? No, I think, I think you're right there in that he does, he does, he uses this letter as an opportunity as a platform to really sort of give us an idea of what's going on in his head. Cause otherwise we don't, there's not a lot out there and, you know, on, on Bezos. But I, I think that, you know, I'm an Amazon shareholder myself and, and I, I understand people who have a problem with the way the business is run because they run on such razor thin margins. And, and it seems like the perpetual argument is, well, they're investing in the business. At some point, it's going to kick in and operating margins and skyrocket and yada, yada, yada. And that's fine. And, and truthfully, I think that Amazon is probably a company that if Bezos were not there, I probably would not own shares. Uh, so I'll qualify that as well. But I, I do think that the one word that came to my mind after reading this letter was proactive. And, and that's the way he thinks. He is a forward thinker in trying trying to see problems before they happen and trying to figure out solutions before people really even know that they have an issue to begin with. And I think that's very Steve Jobs-like in that he was he was giving us things that we didn't even really know we wanted mm-hmm. until we actually had them. Um, the, the quote that stood out for me, and, and I hope I'm not stealing this from, from Matt here, but, <laughs> you know, he says – he talks about how uh, – 
you know, he refers to Benjamin Graham and, and in the short term, the market is a voting machine and the long term, it's a weighing machine. And, and he says, we want to be weighed and we're always working to build a heavier company. And I think that really tells us everything yeah. that we need to know is he is building this company out to more or less put a dent in the universe. And so far, he's succeeding. I mean, if Amazon shut down tomorrow, think about what would happen. Uh, yeah, I think I think it's it's a brilliant letter. I've read several of the letters uh, over the years, uh, but this I, I agree with you, Chris. I think this was a little bit defensive. Uh, you, I didn't think it was defensive, but, it, but well, defending, but, uh, yeah. but but it seemed like he's like the purpose. I, I don't know if he wrote this on his own or if he had help, but regardless, it seemed like part of his mindset was, okay, I gotta. I got to say a few things about mm-hmm. why we're spending the money that we're spending. No, mm-hmm. oh, totally, totally agree. Um, and I, I have to say, I do like this. I'll, I'll, to use to take another quote from this, it's it's this seems like a little bit of a dig at Apple. I want to see what you guys think. He says, "Our investing pro, our investing approach. Uh, no, I'm sorry, it's not our investing approach. Our business approach is to sell premium hardware at roughly break-even prices. We want to make money when people use our devices, not when people buy our pri- our devices. We think this aligns us better with customers. For example, we don't need our customers to be on the upgrade treadmill. <laughs> we can be very happy to see people still using four-year-old Kindles. Uh, I, that that struck me as a little well, bit. We're living that model in our house. My wife has a Kindle that's probably about four years old. Yeah. I have a Kindle that's maybe a year old, and then my daughters have their their Kindle Fires that they got for Christmas. But yeah, they mm-hmm. Amazon is making a killing off of the stuff that we're buying on those devices because every day it's something new. And so I I that's think right. that's people may not really think about that, but I mean the Kindle, for example, just the books alone. I mean, and, and, and let's not talk about you, you and me. Let's talk about our kids, for example. I mean, there, there's potentially another 60, 70 years worth of books to be bought, you know, on just that Kindle device alone. Right. So, I mean, it, it, it really can go on for as far as we can see because I don't know how you improve on that Kindle. You know I mean? I, I don't know how that gets better, mm-hmm. you know? Um, the company reports earnings next week. It's on the 25th. Uh, what are you guys going to be looking for? Uh, obviously, Bezos has maybe more so than he has probably since the last letter sort of shown his hand. And this is uh, like a lot of companies, but uh, Bezos is is pretty close to the vest, particularly when it comes to reporting earnings, conference call time. They don't break out a lot of numbers in the way that we would obviously like them to, but, you know, that's their prerogative and, and so it goes. But I'm just curious, what are you guys going to be watching? Is it any indication of how successful Prime is? Is it overall, you know, is it, you know, that top line revenue number like you were talking about earlier? What are you going to be looking for next week when they report? Yeah. I mean, for me, I think it's, it's always just the, the top line revenue for Amazon. I, I've never, never been concerned about them, you know, reporting meager profits or, or lower margins. The, the street is always obsessed, it seems, with the Amazon's gross and operating margins. And that's just, I've never thought that's a great, you know, prism in which to, to view Amazon. And so, yeah, I'll look at the top line. I mean, I, I think, I'd like to, you know, see if they have any, in, in, if you can tell us more about Amazon Prime or Amazon Web Services. Doubt it. Uh, but to that, that's to me. I mean, I just, there's not really much you can do. I mean, I, I also own Amazon and I've said it before. I just think this, this company has the potential to be the biggest company in the world someday. It's, it's, it's very clear to see, for me to see that. Uh, and so I, quarter to quarter, and we know Jeff Bezos doesn't pay attention to quarter to quarter either. Yeah, no, not at all. And I think a uh, number to go in conjunction with the top line revenue, one that I've been watching for the past uh, couple of years, is shipping costs as a percentage of revenue. Mm-hmm. And I know there are a lot of concerns out there that they're losing money on their shipping because of all the promises they make with their prime relationship. The prime's too cheap, and they can't afford that. But if you look at the numbers, they don't lie. Shipping as a, as a percentage of revenue is coming down, which means that it's working. 
that's a sign that Prime is working. Right. More people are subscribing, and, and, and it's uh, you know a sign. I think that that operating margin expansion uh, could be could be something that that is real and that will be will be happening. All right, Jason Moser, Matt Argus here, guys. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.